Welcome to the third episode of Common Ground with Sean. It is uh, it is lovely, absolutely lovely, to have on uh, my old friend, <laughs> constant friend, uh, Not Greg, too much Greg, <laughs> Greg Huggett. Uh, welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean, and uh, not too much to be old, mate. <laughs> <laughs> much appreciated, much appreciated. So, Greg, obviously we've had we've had an association for uh, for nearly 20 years. It'll be 20 years in November this year. It will be. And uh, it, uh, it certainly doesn't doesn't feel that long. Um, but uh, obviously you employed me in my in my first job at uh, at, uh, at Baxter Light, which I was very thankful for. And started off my my journey into into the world of hospitality, um, so that was that was absolutely fantastic. Um, and but I want you know I want the rest of uh, the rest of the common ground nation to to understand who you're about. So tell me a bit of uh, a bit about yourself personally and about uh, where you started your career, maybe. Yeah. Well. Wow. I'm a 55-year-old man now with three kids, three grown-up mm-hmm. kids. But my journey started 40 years ago when I was 15 when I started an apprenticeship in Adelaide at what is now the Stanford Plaza. It was the Ansett Gateway Hotel then. Wow. Yeah. And I did a four-year apprenticeship as a chef there. Mm-hmm. I... Uh, I then moved over to, well, I was actually looking to go interstate to one of the bigger hotels and I was actually applied to the Melbourne Hilton and they took me off. The Adelaide Hilton was getting built and about to be opened in Adelaide. So I hung around and I applied for a job there Mm -hmm. and was lucky enough to get a role there as a young chef. I was Mm -hmm. one of five out of one five Adelaideans out of a total of 55 chefs that were there. All the rest were from overseas. So that was a daunting experience to start Mm. with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, and then I was with the Hilton there for a number of years. I then transferred to London, worked in the London Hilton for quite a while and then uh, came back. And with my time with Hilton, I've worked in the Singapore Hilton and Munich and where else? Berlin, most of the ones in Australia. Wow. Um, and after a while, I uh, I moved up the ladder in the kitchen and becoming executive chef. They then put me in charge of food and beverage. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also the youngest Australian executive chef ever to be appointed by international group. How old were you at that stage when that happened? Oh, I would have been 31. Yeah, wow. About mm-hmm. 31, 32. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, then they made me F&B director, which is food and beverage director. Yep. For Adelaide, and then they made me food and beverage director for Hilton Australia. Wow. So I've done a few innovative things in Adelaide. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. We did that. And then, was it 97, I think it was, we had a uh, complete turnaround. I had a young family, and my next move would have been to uh, the Middle East or China or somewhere around there. And my wife and I decided that we would rather our children be brought up in Australia. Mm -hmm. And it was when I was 
difficulty getting itchy feet from the Hilton, and we went out and branched out on our own, in our own business. And that's mm-hmm. when we bought the Bakers the lot, and that's when mm-hmm. I met you. There you go. And it's, it's obviously been, um, uh, obviously that was a turning point, and uh, <laughs> it's been, um, it's been uh, great stuff ever since. So I think before before you insert a joke into there, but like. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm on best behaviour today. <laughs> if you um, if you break that down a bit and, and and really go back into that first that first job with Hilton for when you were 15, okay. what what made you want to what made you decide to to get into hospitality? Were you in a were you in a um a very big family growing up? Did you have a you know a couple of siblings, or, or how did that sort of come about? That you decided at 15 you wanted to be wanted to be a cook or a chef? Yeah, no. I used to cook a bit at home. Mm-hmm. Um, if my mother was here, she'd tell you a horrible story of me putting a white paper bag on my head, making out <laughs> I was uh, a chef. So, yeah, I used to, you know, just cook simple things at home as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and like that, and my father just said, have you ever thought of being a chef? And uh, at that stage, I was 15, probably like maybe late 14, actually. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, oh, no, not really. You know, I just, you know, he goes, oh, well, you know, there's good money and there's always a job. He says, you always have a job as a chef, which is mm-hmm. still true. true to this day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if, if you're a good one. Mm-hmm. And and from there, yeah, I started to research it a bit more then and that sort of became my goal. And then I was very lucky because at the same time, the Regency Hotel School was opening here in Adelaide which mm-hmm. became a world-renowned uh, hotel school, hotel mm-hmm. and catering school. So I was mm-hmm. in the first group that went through that. Wow. So all of a sudden I was yeah, from cooking in the kitchen and cooking at home, all of a sudden it just sort of steamrolled along and I was in the kitchen and then never looked back and never really wanted to because well, that was very really hard work. But I loved mm. every minute of it. So. That's great. What, what um what sort of kept you excited about uh, you know saying that you did love it? What what kept you excited in those early days when, you, quite arguably, you know you're talking in a different uh, a different. I know you've mentioned a lot of stories, especially about how when you were working in Europe about about the treatment that you had on on shift. Um, I'm sure it would have been incredibly difficult when you're an apprentice chef at 15, 16, coming through, trying to prove yourself, and you know. And those kind of things, like how, how did you continue to um, be excited every day going to work? Or was that was that just something that was easy for you? No, it was easy. I, mm-hmm. I don't think I ever woke up saying, I don't want to go to work. And that was, mm. you know, doing shifts at midnight, doing shifts at three in the afternoon, or doing shifts at six or seven in the morning. Mm. Uh, I loved the camaraderie of the kitchen brigade. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all in it together. I sort of laugh a bit now when I see, you know, the chefs all complaining about not getting paid for a few hours overtime and situations like that because Mm -hmm. that was part and parcel of what we did. Mm. And we didn't care because we we had an end goal that was to either have that restaurant full and produce great items or it was to fill up a banquet hall and get a big dinner or big banquet out. And it was... An achievement, and by the end of the day, you were just satisfied with what you'd done, and you'd done it as a team. Mm. 
So, yeah, mm. no, I, that was the driving force for me and to get better at what you could do. We were all very devoted to the, the career we had chosen as in chefing and on our days off, in our split shifts, we would go and check out other restaurants and other hotels. And so you lived it and you breathed it. And I'm sitting in a room with about 400 cooking books behind me. And that's, <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, you just live it and breathe it. What's, um, tell me about this. Tell me about the scene in South Australia at that point when you were, when you were coming up and being an, an apprentice chef and, and learning all those new skills and, and, uh, and really having your eyes open to a completely new and exciting industry for you. What was what was the actual scene, the food scene like in South Australia at that point? The food scene then was probably leading the country. Mm. And I don't think I really realised that then. But mm. as I was you know, busy being a little apprentice chef and forging our way through, the likes of Chong Lu and mm. your Maggie Beers and... Um, Chrissy Manfield and all these guys who were household names around Australia, for for me anyway, and back over the decades, mm-hmm. were opening restaurants, and it was a lot to do with Don Dunstan, who was the mm. premier or had just been the premier. He was the one who introduced more arts and culture to Adelaide. He's the one who got the cookery school and the hotel school happening, mm-hmm. and so. Yeah, there was this very unique, and if you read lots of the history books on Australian cuisine, mm-hmm. um, you'll see a lot of it started in Adelaide. And I'll say it's because of the closeness to the Barossa Valley and the, the fresh produce that's around and, you know, just the size of the city made it such. But, yeah, it was an exciting place to be at that time. Philip Searle was another mm-hmm. exciting chef. All of these have then gone on to Sydney and, made their names there. When you, when you say, you said they're the, obviously the quality produce and, and, um, and the great people that were living in South Australia, that was, that was obviously a really important thing, but, but you just talked about the, the population of the city or the size of the city. Do you think, in what way do you think that was a positive for the city that it was actually a smaller, um, smaller amount of people living in that state? Do you think, how did you think that was a positive? Yeah, when we say smaller, back then it was probably the third biggest city in mm. Australia behind Sydney mm-hmm. and Melbourne. Yeah, but, good point. But still, mm-hmm. it's just the um, it's just the proximity. I think well, you know it well. Like in half an mm. hour, you're at the McLaren Vale, and 20 minutes you would have been in the Adelaide Hills, and maybe mm. 40 to the Barossa Valley. So we're sort of surrounded by it, plus the coast with all the fresh seafood on that. So it's just like that real in the real Mediterranean climate. So it lends itself to, you know, areas like Tuscany or that in in Italy. So it was mm. meant to be. Do you think? Do you think the um, obviously coming up as an apprentice chef, and you would have seen would have seen a lot and dealt with suppliers coming through the back door and and really talking to executive chefs and head chefs and promoting their wares and that kind of thing. Do you think that's still as apparent? Now, as it probably would have been during what I believe during that time, it would have been. Uh, no, I think uh, nowadays there'll be a lot more bigger providers taking over the whole lot, just purely out mm-hmm. of cost factor. Whereas sure. we used to have, you know, Sean the apple grower would bring in the apples and mm-hmm. you know to the back door, 
Mm. I remember I remember we had a fisherman who would pull up with his truck and it was just tubs and tubs and tubs of fish that he'd caught that day mm. in the ice and you'd choose what it was. And so a lot of that's gone. A lot of mm-hmm. it is a lot of it's also improved now with the, the range that we can get. So, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, do you find um, with that that um, producer being in the back door and having that uh, having that connection with who produced the product also and, and becoming a bigger, more commoditized kind of industry? Do you find that some seasonality is lost in in food that's being produced? That, Good establishments, or do you think that's still pretty, no, no, pretty much okay? Um, I think the very top establishments would still mm-hmm. keep to the seasonality because, um, yeah, they want the best, very best produce at the at its peak time. Sure. Um, but as a general rule, yes, the seasonality is is virtually gone. I think from. Yeah. But we've gone from being your your local little village where you would get your local stuff to it's now a global village. So, mm, you know, true. You, you can get stuff in from L.A. in the same mm. amount of time as it used to take for the train to bring it into the city or the truck to bring it into the city. So, yeah, it's a very good point. Yeah. Very good point. Yeah. So talk me through the sort of the next stage. You sort of, you would have obviously finished your apprenticeship in South Australia. Um and where did you go from there? Where, when was the point where you went overseas first? Yeah, um, 80, well, I can't remember the year, 80, 81, or 82, mm-hmm. around that time there. Mm-hmm. We went to London, um, mm-hmm. mainly for the language. Yep. And I was with the Hilton. Yep. I was in Hilton Adelaide, so I was able to transfer to, I thought it was later than that. I was at Hilton Adelaide, 81, 82, so it would have been about 84. We went to London. Mm-hmm. Um and able to transfer, which was, you know, a blessing back then. Sure. Uh, we all, there used to be a, a catalogue of Hilton hotels that you we could all look at Yes. from all around the world, and we'd all sort of sit there as chefs or waiters or receptionists looking, oh, wouldn't it be good to work here or wouldn't it be good to work there? Mm. And, and back in that time, it was a lot easier to travel around the world and get visas or so, and so that's what we did. But I, I chose London. One because mm-hmm. my wife is from England, and uh, mm-hmm. you know the language and all that. So yeah, so that's when I ended up at the Park Lane Hilton. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So was that a, was that a, was that a normal thing that was given to Hilton staff at that point in time? You would you would you know do your time. You'd become a really good apprentice. You'd you'd finish your qualification, become a sous chef or a chef de party, and then and then they'd offer you to go and work in Tokyo or work in London or work in or they wouldn't really promote you to hey Greg I think you should go to you know London or Paris today mm. <laughs> but, yeah. but there was an open network mm-hmm. where you would move around and you'd move around and chefs that we worked with in Adelaide you'd, you'd meet up again somewhere else in London and all that and they're really on the move they were very much on the move. Uh, the company would also do, I was lucky, I'd sort of push for it, but you would get work experience. So if I wanted to go and work in Melbourne for a couple of weeks, they'd, mm-hmm. they'd do a work, ex- work experience program where you could go over there and work for a few weeks and one of theirs would come over to wow. our hotel wow. and do things like that. And then, yeah, but it's just that the chefs are quite 
um, nomadic people uh, yep. within, and they would, yeah, they'd like to travel. And uh, we were just lucky with the Hilton. It's not just the Hilton. The other hotels did the same yeah, thing as well. Same but, thing. But, yeah. Yeah. but, yeah, you moved around. And then you'd meet up at, you know, like in... I can't remember what year it was, but I was in Singapore and we'd have like the Salon Culinaire, which is a big cooking competitions, and we'd all meet up. You'd meet chefs there that, oh, I remember working with you at such and such, and everyone knew where everyone was and what they were doing, and that was mm. without internet. <laughs> in, the, in the olden days, Greg. Um, in the olden days, yeah. <laughs> but different relationships. And I'd know, imagine um, maybe some of those people... Within the 80s who you worked with in, in different kitchens, you you know, you probably would still have an association with now if you wanted to, like, you know. So, yeah, I do. Yeah. So it, it, it's it, it, uh, what I'm trying to bring across in, in, in these, you know, chain of podcasts is, is that hospitality is such an industry which just builds people's self-esteem and it, and it builds their camaraderie and spirit of team and, and um and yes, I'm 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 happy you had that experience. If it does, I'm still in contact with my first executive chef at the Hill. Wow. Wow. So yeah, I still see him There used to be also I think called the chef's table where the sous chefs mm-hmm. and the head chef would they'd stop for lunch every day and they'd have lunch in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. Which Probably nowadays they call elitist and uh, HR people wouldn't let you do it because, you know, you've all got to eat together in a canteen or something. Yes. But if you were another chef, and it, it happened to me, I went, because this is what we did, like I said, like I said earlier, like, we'd go on a holiday to, say, Brisbane, and you'd go into the Brisbane Hilton and have a look and you'd do a tour of their kitchen. Right, yes. And if the chef knew you were there, mm. he would invite you to the chef's table. So you would sit at the chef's table. Mm. And that was, like, such an honour. But you'd go around and, yeah, all, we would always have other chefs visiting and touring the kitchens just to see what was going on. It was, and like you're saying, it, there's a real camaraderie and there's a real community that was there. Did that teach you a lot at that time about, you know, a, a young man coming through at 15, 16, upwards of 20 and going overseas and that kind of stuff? Was that, was that uh, teaching a lot about respect? and gratitude at that point in time and at an early age? Very much so. Very mm. much so. Um, yeah, it's very hierarchical, the kitchen. You would respect and revere your executive mm. chef or sous chef. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and because you would learn from them and mm-hmm. then you would hope that you could do the same to the people who worked under you. Mm. I understand. So talk to me about that time in Europe when you whereabouts in Europe did you um did you end up going before you decided to come come back home to South Australia? No, we worked well, I mainly worked in the Park Lane Hilton and then for mm-hmm. a uh, brief time we went to uh, a manor house down in Winchester, which is south of mm-hmm. England. Mm-hmm. called Langston House. Mm-hmm. And um that was a completely different experience for me. I'd mainly been in the bigger hotels, and this was a 50-room private hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were quite surprised at how skillful the young Australian chefs could be. <laughs> so, um, what do you think that was, Greg? Well, they they well. While I was there, the whole mm. world was turning because 
Like when we grew up, it was just all French cuisine. You would learn, yes. learn basically mm-hmm. learn French cuisine. Mm-hmm. So we would also want to go to Europe for mm-hmm. our experience, and it adds to your resume. So you could mm-hmm. say, I'd worked in Europe and all that. And then once we got home, the wheel had turned, and Neil Perry's and Gay Bilson's of the world were starting to forge this new Australian cuisine, for want of a better word. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we because of that's what and why we would lead the world within a few years and still mm-hmm. do, I believe. But uh, mm-hmm. just because of our attitude to food and not being stuck in our set history. ways of mm-hmm. yeah, set ways yeah. and traditions and history and trying things. So which was a great coup for me when I got invited back to the London Hilton as a guest chef in 90-something or other, 93. So from being there as an apprentice at one time, I was then back to the big poster up in the lobby and <laughs> was showcasing Australian food, which was a, a real thrill. So. Must have been very humbling for you at that point. It was. Mm. So what, what eventually made you... Um, you and Christine come home at that at that point in time, like mainly the weather. <laughs> Fair enough. That's a that's a yeah. good reason. And yeah, just, mainly the weather. And you and you felt that you just probably had you learnt enough. Did you feel you you're aware that you'd learnt enough for the trip that you'd had? You guys had had. Yeah, we were like two years in. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you think you're going to go straight back again? Mm. <laughs> but life gets in the way, and you don't. Mm. But um, yeah, I was I was pretty fortunate where I was that I could stay at home, but still manage to go overseas regularly and interstate regularly mm-hmm. uh, on cooking and working. And so I was getting the overseas feel, but also mm-hmm. managing to stay at home in Adelaide. Tell me when you you and Christine did come back home, you obviously went back to Hilton. That's right, isn't it? No, I originally went to the Lakes Resort because there was was, Hilton wanted me back, but then there was a chef Mm -hmm. from the Hilton that left and he'd opened the Lakes Resort. It was just brand new open. And he says, come and work here. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, no, I'm going back here. Well, in fact, we were going to go to Sydney. And we're only coming back to Adelaide to say hello to family, isn't it? Right. A couple of jobs thrown at me, so mm-hmm. I took the one at the lakes. It was a different experience for me, mm-hmm. opening their fine dining room, which was good for a, about eight or nine months, and then I ended up going back to the Grange at the Hilton. So. Mm-hmm. Was, there, was there a reason why? Did you just feel that fine dining was sort of done, or was that... Was no, no, I was still doing the, the artist personality clashes, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, never. And I like about that hospitality. You know, I like the uh, I like the bigger hotels. I like the whole the whole thing to move my way up, and mm-hmm. yeah. So that was the next step. Is it the structure as well that in in those kind of groups? Is it is that does that sort of bring some um, for a person who's uh, you know uh, who's married and about to have some kids that it brings some sort of structure that you you actually enjoyed is that the reason why 
For which one? For going to the... For the no, going to the hotel. For going back to Hilton. And going no, no, there's actually less structure there, I think. Oh, wow. Okay. So, more. When I was at the other hotel, I was working Monday to Friday, 8 to 4, which I'd never done in my life. Wow, okay. And uh, <laughs> just doing lunches, so that, that sounded like a good thing for a while, and then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I got bored, so... <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. In, in the every day. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. So, and, uh, yeah, so we went back to the bigger, busier environment. Mm-hmm. And, what, and what kind of role did you go back into Hilton as? I was back as junior sous chef, I believe, or chef de party, junior sous chef, and then mm-hmm. I was uh, yeah, in charge of the Grange, which was their fine dining room. Wow. Okay. And, and how old were you at this stage, Greg? <laughs> Sorry to make you calculate, I'm just curious. 20, 28, let's say 28, around there. That would have been a massive coup cool at that age to, to be in charge of the most important restaurant, you know, probably arguably in South Australia at that point. Oh, no, there was a few around at that time, but yeah, mm. uh, but... Um, you know, it was uh, all good, all good. What kind of, um, what kind of? I'm drinking. I think you've been a bit humble, but what kind of, um, what kind of cuisine was the Grange in Hilton producing at that point in time? Yeah, it was French, mm-hmm. predominantly French, but with the, the Asian influence starting to enter, mm-hmm. we could see, and we had an Asian executive chef then, Gerard, mm-hmm. so he had a bit of influence. That way, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and then you started to. It was interesting. They started a series of guest chefs coming in. Okay, and that's when we had like Neil Perry and Tony Bilson, Dave Bilson. They would come in, and then we could. Act, and it was the first time hotels like that had done a guest chef series without overseas international chefs. Like normally, they would have. Mm-hmm. The French chefs come over and all this mm-hmm. sort of stuff. And mm-hmm. very entrepreneurial food and beverage manager, John Ingram, mm-hmm. said, oh, we've got just as good chefs here in Australia. Mm-hmm. Let's showcase them. And that's, he started that. And uh, that was in Adelaide Hilton again. So it was Adelaide showing the way mm-hmm. again. And we learned so much from them. And then, um, yeah, it changed my life a lot when we started to work with those guys. Especially Neil Perry. So. Oh, sorry. What what was what was just like Neil Perry sort of teaching you that you haven't been you haven't seen before? It was Neil Perry and it was David Thompson, but just mm-hmm. the freshness of the produce that they would they, they would seek out and find. Okay. So, you know they were getting produce in Sydney that was like farm or fished here in South Australia, which we wouldn't even see. You'd have to go and find it because they would just grab it and source it and get it there and again the Asian influences and uh, and uh, just the freshness of everything and just I hate the word fusion but starting mm-hmm. to mix all the different flavours together was, mm-hmm. uh, very exciting times what do you, you would have seen obviously a lot of change in the industry um, during your, your whole span but especially you know a lot of change during the, during the time you were a chef Greg what do you what do you think them uh, and with that you would have seen a lot of people who who give up and who decide to do something else after coming into hospital. What do you, what do you believe the main reason 
or a couple of the main reasons is that, that people do give up in the hospitality industry. They're not good enough, I think. Um, <laughs> most of the most of the my peers, the ones I know, are still in it. Yeah, um, and that's maybe because they're at the top of the tree. But uh, yeah, the only ones that I've ever seen fall by the wayside are those that aren't really truly committed. Mm-hmm. They don't want to do the hours. I think it's better to be a sales rep or do something like that. Yeah, sure. And uh, it usually doesn't work. They get there mm-hmm. and then they realise they were better off in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. But they haven't done the hard yards, so they end up with the ordinary job. And it just becomes a toil for them. But I can honestly say, and I'm sitting here trying to think, but most of the people that I know that I say were my peers are still in the industry in some way, whether that they now may be the general manager of the hotel, yep. they may have their own restaurant, mm-hmm. they may be in charge of an airline, but they're still involved in, you know, the industry in some way. Do you think there's a con- uh, I'll use the word concern because I can't think of another one, but uh, with obviously the explosion of, you know, uh, of food TV shows like MKR or MasterChef or those kind of shows. And I think we even saw it with really Jamie Oliver. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of great chefs on TV over the last 30 or 40 years. But if you look at probably from when Jamie really started building food and making that accessible to people and people really getting interested in food in a deep down kind of way, do you think there's a, there's a possibility that people could, watch those kind of shows, want to get into the industry and then not really see what the industry actually is? Absolutely. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it, they look like rock stars on TV mm. doing all the shows and it looks very glamorous. Mm. Um, at the end of the day, it's just it's a lot of hard work, a lot of reward yep. if you're in the right place, but a lot of hard work, long hours, and um, yeah, it's not quite as glamorous as it does look on TV. Mm-hmm. And I can't, I honestly can't believe how many shows I could tell you a story that we put together a 30 minute pilot episode with mm-hmm. myself as a chef, uh, very prominent Adelaide winemaker. We made this food and wine show. Mm-hmm. Denise Drysdale from Melbourne, we did it as a pilot <laughs> and we were told that nobody would want to watch food or wine on TV. So <laughs> Just a little, ahead of our, little bit ahead of our time, yeah. yeah. Timing. And it was mm-hmm. all done properly and all that. But yeah, back to your point, yes, I do, because it's not that glamorous. And um, <laughs> at, 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 the, at the pointy end, it's hard work. So. Mm. Can you... Um, can you remember your hardest service that you've had, and why and why it might have been such a hard service to be to be a part of? Um, my very first one when I went into the Grange kitchen because they put all the Aussies in the banquet kitchen, mm-hmm. and they had all the French and Germans in the main dining room because mm-hmm. they didn't think Aussies could cook, but for some reason they plucked me out and put me down in the dining room mm-hmm. in the end of the Grange, and I was all set. I was in my section, and then 
the chef starts calling out all the orders in French. <laughs> and I thought, shit, I don't speak French. But you had to learn very quick. That was a hard one. Mm. Uh, probably the hardest time I had, not just service, but the hardest time, which may be more relevant, was when I introduced Chong Lu to the Grange. Mm-hmm. And would be the hardest three months of my life getting people to change. People don't like change. Sure. And um, changing habits and changing attitudes. Um, yeah, that was really hard. And then, but the reward, the old no risk, no reward, when it mm. went on and you became restaurant of the year and all that, it pays mm. off. Mm. And you just sit back with a smile on your face when you know those that didn't want it to happen were the first ones going, look, he's our chong, this is our restaurant. And you think, I'll say those words on a podcast, but yeah. <laughs> they, um, yeah it's just human nature, but yeah, that was a hard time. It's always hard to, to, to do things differently. Without a doubt. How did that, how did that association come with Chong? I know, I know obviously he did a lot for for Hilton at that point in time when I when I came to working with you he was involved in Hilton and and uh and had a had obviously a massive name because of the quality of food that he was producing in that kitchen how did yeah. how did that association come with you and him well I knew him from Regency Park he was teaching mm-hmm. at the college there well wow. yeah. and I was well, I think I was executive chef in charge of food and beverage. I might have been food and beverage manager at the Hilton. Mm-hmm. And we had a quandary because fine dining in hotels was dying. Yes. Getting harder and harder to get people in there. So uh, I think my quote was, we need to either turn this into McDonald's or turn it into the best restaurant in Australia. Right. And I said to the general manager, you know, we need to do something radically different. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's let's bring in someone. And he, lucky, you know, all credit to him that he let me run with what I wanted to do. And then I went and approached Chong, and we have a good relationship. And uh, he came to work with us. At the, wow, in the Grange. And then, yeah, he was there for quite a number of years in the end. And then opened restaurants in Perth, Hilton, and did guest chefs all around the spot. And still does to this day. But yeah. I know obviously you have a you have a great friendship with Chong and I think that that's the basis of any um good business um dealings. But how did how did you know that Chong was the right fit for what you were trying to do? Or was it just a was it just purely luck that it that it just happened the way it did? No. There's a lot of luck involved, but mm. um more gut feeling than anything. Mm-hmm. Um okay. I just knew he was. I mean, he, his reputation was enormous. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people at that time didn't know it. People in the food industry mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. Uh, other people didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I can remember meeting, having to meet the area director of Hilton in Sydney, and he's saying, "Where are all the figures on this, Greg? Have you got the figures? You know, your forecasts and strategies and all that." And I said. I've done a few, but uh, I just think it'll work. I just have a gut feeling, you know. I mean, yeah. he's, well, I'm thinking, oh, shit, here we go. And <laughs> he just, credit to him too, he just says, sometimes we just have to go with our gut. 
Mm. I was lucky he did. And then, um, yeah, we never knew it was going to work, but we were just quietly confident, you know, and when he was on the main front page of the advertiser and other papers around mm. the country that first day, I went, I think we made it. <laughs> <laughs> must, have been a, must have been a good day, I'm sure. That was a good day. Mm. That was a good day. So tell me about uh, tell me about yourself coming out of Hilton Hotels after obviously such a long a long career, if not you know starting and then leaving and then starting again. But what what made you decide to buy that Bakes Delight franchise and and change? Yeah, like, like I said in the beginning, you know, my wife and I didn't want to bring up the kids overseas, or what would generally happen is you'd be the general manager in the hotel and your kids would be at an international school somewhere else, yes. which we we didn't really want to do. We wanted to you know, have kids who will bring them up. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, we started to look for business because I believe myself to be rather entrepreneurial and that, that's mm-hmm. why we were looking. And um, yeah, it was just fate one day. My wife was shopping at the, at the Fulham Shopping Centre where we were and and there was shops for lease, and then I was on the internet looking for businesses, and it says uh, how Baker's Delight wanted to put in a bakery there. And, uh, and um, Chris said, well, that's funny, because there's a shop for rent down here. I reckon the Baker's Delight would do really well, and mm-hmm. we didn't even think twice, and then we just went through the process, and because uh, mm-hmm. we knew we were pretty confident it would work in that centre, which it did. Yeah. You're going to ask me why I did not have a restaurant instead of a bakery, and <laughs> that's what most people do. And it's yes, basically because it's too hard to make money in a restaurant. Back <laughs> in that time in Adelaide, so yeah, the, the bakery time. was yeah, the bakery was a far more viable option, so, and it was still related to food. So yeah, mm-hmm. I fitted in quite well. Was it also a case of again you going back to gut feel and just feeling, and, and Christine as well feeling like it was the right decision? Yeah, we. Uh, it's funny from when we made that. It was hard when I left. It was very very hard leaving the hotel industry, yes. and it took me a while. Well, as you know, I was, I was still mm-hmm. writing for. I was still doing food tours for overseas yep. people. I was still writing for the sun, you know, newspapers and all that. Yeah, it took me a long that. time. Took me a long time to really let go, if I ever mm-hmm. did let go. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we we just thought it was the right time and the right business mix, and Baker's Delight was um, new and exciting, and uh, off we went. And then. What did you think the I know obviously this will this will be your twentieth year obviously that you've been with the company and, and, and seen many different changes. I think when you would have bought that franchise there probably would have been around two hundred, do you think, around Australia at that point, based a lot? Yeah. 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 Seven hundred now. So. Yeah. I mean well, the biggest worldwide. worldwide and you know, the biggest bread retailer in the world. I mean what what do you think has been the reason for for their growth during that time, Greg? Um, sticking to their core values, mm-hmm. um, real bread, real delight, mm-hmm. um, 
we're lucky that Roger and Leslie Gillespie have, you know, they've, whenever we, whenever it gets hard and we all want to go and find a silver bullet to try and do something, when I say mm-hmm. we, I'm talking all the franchisees, yeah. they sort of ground us and, you know, you know, reiterate about, it's about the environment, it's about the product, about the service and all those sort of things. Yeah. They're the ones that will get you through and working hard. So I think mm-hmm. they've done that. I think their, their commitment to the local community mm-hmm. and basically a quality product is what's, what's made them last for 30 years, I think it is now. Yeah, it's a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you... um? How did you find a change from, obviously a massive change, but what did you find a couple of the big things from going from a hotel group, which is obviously a lot of structure, but, but arguably you would have a lot of control in in, um, in what you could do with food and menu and that kind of thing to some degree, to going into a, uh, going into a franchise system, which is obviously yeah. very regulated and very controlled. How did you, how did you find that transition from um, doing those... Well, it was easy for me, really, because mm. with my last few years in the hotel, I was in food and beverage anyway, so you're trying to get people to step to um, standards anyway, mm-hmm. uh, minimum quality standards, whether it be in the kitchen, whether it be in the restaurant or wherever. And so being with the franchise system, they had the systems there as well. So they had as many products as you would want anyway. Yes. So... Um, more more than you need. Yeah. So you know that for me then it was more about the management side of things. Mm-hmm. I'd uh, done all the food side, I've done the chefic side, and then I was in the, the management of people and the management of standards and all that. So I that that was my challenge then, and the, the thrill I would get then out of you know setting up systems and stuff like that. So that blended with my. Um, which is what I was doing at the Hilton anyway. Before I left mm-hmm. there, we were setting up minimum quality standards. And so mm-hmm. just going into the franchise system was, this is what we should have been doing in the hotel type thing. So, yeah. Fair enough. Did you find your, um, obviously you've been managing people for a long time before you came into Baxter Art. Did you find that your management style or the way you approached things with people changed when you, when you bought your own business and, and started in backslide? Yeah, it did dramatically. Um, mm-hmm. First, people called me Greg, not Mr. Huggett. That was a big change. <laughs> yeah, right. Interesting. Except Annie. Um, <laughs> yeah. Who came with one lady who came with me from the Hilton, who still called me Mr. Huggett. Yes. Um, and you're true. dealing with, with a different group of people, so you had to change. Well, I had to change a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a small group. It's a small unit that you're in. Um, and obviously, as time was going on, the hierarchical bit was leaving. Mm-hmm. You couldn't rule with the iron fist and yelling and screaming. And, uh, um, yeah, that was more managed by influence and you know, follow the way I do it, not, not do as I say type thing. Set mm-hmm. the example. So, mm-hmm. well, that's what I like to think I did. <laughs> <laughs> was it um, was it was it different also 
with working in kitchens and 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 putting meals up that you can see sort of a uh, you know a product which might take uh, half an hour from start to finish to cook to having a baked product which could could take upwards of you know uh, not having a result for like a a pen of the castle loaf which is a which is a fermented loaf for for upwards of twelve hours did you find that um, difficult to see a, such a change in in how yeah, long because, you could actually see a result no because when you think of the food that we would prepare back mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm. It would probably take just as long from when you start mm-hmm. making your initial stock right. to you start doing your mise en place and mm-hmm. yeah, so to get your uh, jus on the plate would take you know two days actually. So yeah, wow. By the time you made your stocks and reduced and all those sort of things, so yeah, a lot of it. Um, yeah, no, I st- I would still get enormous satisfaction. Uh, when you'd leave the shop in the morning, as I would, mm-hmm. after you've done a big banquet or a big dinner or a great dinner service, you, you know you're, you're satisfied with what you've done, the meals you've put out, the quality you've put out. I would get that in the bakery, as I'm sure you did, Sean. Yeah. Knowing when you walked in the bakery, there was just empty racks and nothing mm-hmm. but bags of flour, mm-hmm. and then you leave and there's 140 products. Sitting on the, on the shelves, and you think, oh, I did that with my hands. So that's, that's still a very rewarding part of that. Profession. That hasn't 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 left you during that part of time. No, no, mm. it's a good thing. Yeah, you know when you talked before about the margins in in restaurants, and and that's the reason why you didn't open a restaurant and why you decided to go into bakeries. If if I was to say to you that there would be a guaranteed 10 or 15% net profit out of a restaurant that you could create, would you do that now? Now is now my time in life now yeah. or now? Now is, in, now, now is in your actual, your 55-year-old self now. Would you do that now? Oh, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. I'm on the on the wind down, but uh, yeah, there's the answer. <laughs> awesome. Um, the answer. That's the answer. I think you know, maybe I do sometimes wonder, mm-hmm. but you shouldn't ever have regrets. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it might have been good to have a restaurant and do that, and uh, but it wasn't to be. So no point regretting that. So no, absolutely not. No. Um, what would you say, uh, my last question uh, today as we end it, uh, all Common Ground podcasts, um, I really thank you for your time today. Um, it's been good to learn some new stuff, even though I've known you for such a long time, and it's been very important to me to have you on one of the early episodes because of how much you've meant to my career. Um because Hilton, the funny thing was that Hilton, uh, I think it was Hilton, Hilton or one of those hotel groups turned me down for an apprenticeship oh. when I was 15, right? Yeah. I don't know if I, I, don't know if I told you this, but, um, and then I and then I was really disgruntled. And it wasn't until my mother said that, uh, oh, there's a backslide around the corner. I'm like, why don't you go and work there? And that's when I started working with you, obviously. You took a risk on me at 16. Yeah. And... Um, so obviously, you know, I just started my career. Calculated risk. It was a calculated risk. <laughs> <laughs> but um, 
So I really thank you for your time today. I know you're involved in a, a lot of different projects and, and you're a busy man, um, as all good people are. But um, what, w- what would you say to your 18-year-old self, knowing what you know now? Um, take more chances. Take okay. more chances, Greg. Um, work as hard as you can. To quote someone you and I know really hard, work, eat, eat dirt for mm-hmm. 10 years. Mm-hmm. So you can eat caviar for 20. Yep. Or for the rest, but um, yeah, just to don't listen to what people say. Follow your heart. Do what you have with passion, and work bloody hard. It's hard work. Work hard, and you'll see mm-hmm. the rewards. Can't agree and more. And don't worry about the small shit. Mhm. Because it will all work itself out. I think. I think we both know that pretty well. And get Greg Huggett. It's always the haircut. You did have a great ponytail back in the day. Well, I do. You know, you know it's, uh, it's Neil Perry would be jealous. Um, yeah. Uh, Greg, again, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it a lot. Um, I'll definitely put some links in to a different pre- business projects that you have on the go um, in this podcast when I share it. And um, I really appreciate your time today. So thanks for spending this little bit of time with me to share your story. Thank you for having me, Sean. Always a pleasure to help one of my most gifted employees. (laughs) Thanks, Greg. All right. We'll talk to you again soon, guys. Thanks so much.